coming of Christ, the true good news, the reason for the season really is Jesus Christ himself. So go ahead and grab your Bibles and meet me in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. Um, as you turn there, um, I'm going to set the scene for us this morning. So Matthew 2 is the story of the flight of Mary, Joseph, and little baby Jesus to Egypt to escape the, the murderous plans of a power-hungry King Herod. I know many of us may be thinking, like, hey, not the most joyous text for a Christmas sermon, guys. Like, like w- what in the world? Why would you do this? But this is our normal pattern. We're preaching through books of the Bible. We preach through passages of the Bible. And this is what God has for us this morning. See, we need to see and be reminded that even though we may sing songs like Silent Night, that doesn't mean that those, those nights weren't very violent as well. See, here's the truth. The Christmas story cannot be told in all of its brutal fullness without acknowledging that the very salvation of this world could not come without being surrounded by the very mayhem and evil that Jesus came to fix. See, it's not difficult to look back on the year that's gone by and, and see and remember all the carnage that we've kind of walked through and seen gone, around, or, or gone on around us. We've just had news again of another shooting happening, of another mass murder of, of suffering and sorrow from the ongoing war in Ukraine to the tragedy of the, of the attack on Israel and the war that's now started there to the suffering and sorrow that many of us have experienced in our own life here in this church. See, but this passage isn't just about the reality of brokenness and suffering in our world. This passage ultimately points us to Jesus. This passage is about hope. It's about the hope because it shows us that God is radically committed to seeing the promise of his salvation fulfilled in Jesus. Let's see it together in the text. Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. I'll read this aloud for us, and it'll also come up on the screens for us. The word of the Lord to us this morning speaks this. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child, that's Jesus, and his mother, and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead and he rose and he took the child and his mother and he went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod he was afraid to go there and being warned in a dream he withdrew to the district of Galilee he went and lived in a city called Nazareth as we'll learn later this is quite literally, stick town. They went and moved to the sticks. He went and lived in a city called Nazareth, 
so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Let me pray for us once more for God's help. Jesus, we ask this morning that you would be with us through the preaching of your word. God, I pray that we would be um, exhorted this morning, that we would be comforted this morning, God, that we would have the, the hope of the gospel put before us yet again, uh, as shown through this text of these this flight of Jesus and his family from one place to another. God, let us see your plan for salvation ultimately revealed in Jesus and what he would do for us on the cross and taking our sin, burying it, and then resurrecting again on the third day, uh, granting to us new life in himself. Jesus, I pray that this morning we would remember the good news of Christmas in light of all the brokenness around us, and may we celebrate it in, in truth and in reality. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So a few weeks ago, um, we started this uh, little jaunt through Matthew. Uh, so so three, three sermons deep. This is the fourth one. We'll be taking a break from Matthew after this and launching into a new series in the new year in the book of Hebrews. But I want us to remind us where we've been. So a few weeks ago, we looked at the genealogy of Jesus. And, and, and much to some of our surprise, it wasn't very uh, boring because it wasn't just a list of names. It was a list of names that are, are surprising. Again, Ryan showed us that uh, genealogies was really like your resume back in the day. So it wasn't just like what you did or what, you, what uh, accolades that you had. Your resume was the, the list of names that followed you, the place that you came from. And this genealogy showed that Jesus was in the line of David, in the line of the king. He was the promised Messiah to come. But it really surprised us as well because there were some names in that list that we wouldn't include in our own family tree. Right? You've got uncles and aunts out there, or maybe even cousins, or maybe just some of your close nuclear family where you're like, I would actually leave them out of my list because they're crazy. Like, those people are wild. I, I don't want them associated with me, but not so with Jesus. Jesus includes outsiders and messy people in his own family tree. Then we looked at the birth of Jesus, and we saw that Jesus really is God with us to save us. And this past week, we saw the three responses of the coming of Jesus and the birth of Jesus with the visit of the Magi. We saw the apathetic religious leaders. We saw the hate-filled King uh, Herod. And it's amazing that the ones that we are called to emulate are the ones who are the pagan star worshipers, the astrologists, who when they finally saw Jesus, when they came before him, what did they do? They bowed down. They worshiped him. They gave to him of their possessions. They worshiped the true king. And now we see in this story in Matthew 2 where God's commitment to seeing the promise of salvation protected through three scenes. Three scenes where Jesus is miraculously protected. We're told at the end of each of these was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophets. Meaning that all of these scenes were part of the plan of God to bring about our salvation. These three scenes that are kind of terrifying were to bring about the true salvation of us, of you and me, through what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross. The three scenes go like this. The flight to Egypt, Herod's cruelty, and then return to Nazareth. We'll look quickly at each of these scenes. First, let's look at this flight to Egypt in 13 through 15. So what do we make of this? What do we make of this flight to Egypt? Anytime Egypt is mentioned in the, in the Bible, if you know your Old Testament, if you know your you know, Sunday school stories, anytime Egypt is mentioned, we tend to think like, oh, you don't go there. You don't willingly go to Egypt. That's a bad place. They make you slaves there. 
right? They make you make bricks without straw in Egypt, so we don't want to do that, right? No, God actually calls Joseph. He, he has an angel appear to him in a dream. And by this point, we're thinking, man, Joseph is getting uh, angels in dreams to him on the nightly, right? He's like got a schedule mapped out. It's like Gabriel's coming on Monday. Then we got uh, uh, M- Michael, the archangel, coming on Wednesday in a dream. So he's like sketching it all out. No, see, this angel had one purpose in mind. It was to communicate the plans of God, deliver the word of God to Joseph, to warn him of the coming threat, but also instruct him for their protection. And then we see this obedience of Joseph to flee and take his family from the promised land, from Israel, into the land of Egypt. And what we see here is this incredible vulnerability of Jesus on display in Matthew chapter 2. Not only is Jesus born in a stable, in a stall, in a a place where animals would feed, and we see the humility of Jesus on display there, we see Jesus also, too, as a refugee. He's a refugee in a foreign country. He's not in the place where his fathers lived. He's not in the place where he would be recognized as a descendant of David. He's in a place where he would be vulnerable. He's been born into a violent world, and he's having to live the life of a refugee. Also, too, it's hard not to see this parallel to the Exodus and the fulfillment of prophecy all throughout Scripture. See, like God's people found refuge in the later chapters of Genesis, when Joseph brought his family into Egypt to provide for them and protect them there, During a great famine, so Jesus himself goes to Egypt for refuge. This is almost a reverse exodus because Jesus escapes the clutches of evil King Herod. Remember, this is Israel. This is the ruler of Israel at the time he's been put in place there. He has become a a, a bigger, badder Pharaoh. And he falls right in line with what Pharaoh did as well. What did Pharaoh do when his, his power was threatened? He killed the baby boys. We see this scene play again. See, in this story, there's these unexpected detours, and we see God provide divine guidance. But in this, these unexpected detours are anything but unexpected to God. And we can kind of relate to this in some of our own stories as well. I I can say that there's ways in which I've been led by God that I just didn't know what he was doing or what he was directing me throughout my life. When, when Kylie and I got married, um, we had no idea that I would be in ministry, right? I know that you've probably heard a pastor say that before, but we really didn't. I was a teacher, like I was a, a public school, middle school teacher, uh, you know, I went, uh, and then I decided uh, to join a church planning team and move down here to Fayetteville. I had no idea I'd be part uh, of, of the leadership of that team, um, but we kind of had this willingness of like, God, you know, We'll go anywhere you want us to go. We're on fire for Jesus. You know, we'll go to the nations with the gospel. And where did God call us to? Fayetteville, (laughs) right? An hour plus outside of Raleigh. We thought we might end up in Africa or Asia somewhere. But nope, Jesus called us to Fayetteville. And we'll see later, you know, like what good could come out of Nazareth? What good could come out of Fayetteville? We're like, what in the world, Jesus? We we thought we'd go anywhere. But we joined the church planning team, and now I'm a pastor. We've weathered some crazy seasons, and now I serve as the lead pastor of this church. And I had no idea what Jesus was doing all, all along the way, and it still kind of feels crazy. But this is so. With the life of following Jesus, God shows his protection and guides our way forward, even when we have no idea what he's doing. But this story shows this to such degree, because 
we may experience this in small ways in our personal life, but God is radically committed to seeing his plan of salvation through Jesus all the way to having his, his son, Jesus, escape to Egypt along with his adopted stepfather, J Joseph, and his mother, Mary, to go live in a foreign land. And we see Matthew saying that this is fulfilling the words of prophecy, words that God had spoken. Look at verse 15. It says, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and by this, the prophet Hosea, and uh, Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. See, that's not all the story tells us. It continues with showing the cruelty of a scared and power-hungry king. Let's look at verses 16 through 18 again together. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is Herod's ruthless attempt to eliminate Jesus as a rival king. As a threat to his power even. Herod is a terrible reminder for all of us though. That we all have the capacity to use the power that we have to do terrible things in the name of protecting that power. Here, Herod kills all the children, not just in the town of Bethlehem. Think like 20, 25 kids. This was like a, a smaller town, but the surrounding region as well. He kills all the children there. This is absolutely horrifying. It's hard for us to imagine being so vulnerable to such a thing. Even the amount of control that these armed forces must have had in contrast to the vulnerable, how vulnerable these families must have been to be subjected to seeing their own children murdered. This dark moment, and in this dark moment, we are reminded once more of the darkness of the human ambition and fear that resides within every single one of us. And how much that fear and, and that ambition is in, in contrast to God's good, redemptive plan. See, when we see the darkness of our own human hearts, in the depths of our own sin and depravity, we can see the heights of God's goodness and his grace and his mercy. See, we as humans plot and scheme about how to get ahead and how to keep what we have and get rid of those who might threaten us, but not so with God. God shows us in the gospel that he uses his power not to threaten, but to invite us in. God uses his great strength to, uh, not to keep what he has, in order to save us and give us what we don't deserve. See, this is the beauty of the gospel, that God is committed to seeing salvation brought to us even through the darkest of circumstances. Because this prophecy from the prophet Jeremiah, found in Jeremiah 31, isn't a fun one. See, Matthew tells us that this uh, fulfillment of a prophecy in uh, the sorrow of Ramah. Look at verse 15 again. It says, thus says the Lord, a verse is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted uh, for her children because they are no more. See, Rachel here is an embodiment. This is the wife of Jacob, uh, the wife of Israel, the one who would be the patriarch of all of the people of Israel. And he's, she symbolizes a, a national mother for all of the people. And all of Israel now weeps 
See, I believe that this shows the heart of God for all injustice and all tragic loss of life. This Christmas time, where we celebrate the heights of joy of the coming of Jesus, right alongside of that in the songs we sing, we lament the injustices of the world as well. Because our God has not just come to give us some type of plastic happiness, some type of pencil-coated thing that we can kind of uh, just wrap our emotions into that are, are and, and push away all feelings of, of doubt or sorrow or, or tragic loss. No, in the gospel, in the good news that God brings, he allows us to, 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 in, to fully embody both senses of our emotion, the heights of joy and the depths of sorrow right alongside one another. We get to live as fully human because Jesus lived as fully human. See, Jesus meets us in wherever we are coming from. See, if you're here this Christmas and it holds sorrow for you, see, know that God knows your pain. He wants to meet you in it. Not with some soulless anecdotes either. With real emotions and hope beyond your despair. A hope beyond death itself. It's the hope of resurrection. And that's not where our story ends either. God is going to show that his one protection in one final way. Let's look at verses 19 through 23 one more time. Verse 19. But when Herod died, the evil king finally passes away. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city of Nazareth, so that what was been spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So again, Joseph gets another dream. Okay, Friday night, <laughs> Joseph's got another dream from another angel telling him what to do and where to go. In this last section, he's had two consecutive dream angels. But through all of this, it continues to show God's sovereign control over these circumstances. See, Joseph faithfully follows this divine guidance. It settles his family in a place he probably didn't expect. Because if Judea and the, the, the re region of Israel had uh, different parts of town, this was the bad part of town. You didn't want to move to Nazareth. It says elsewhere in the New Testament, like, what good could come out of Nazareth? What good could come out of Stick Town? I mean, that's literally the sticks where all the, the, the hicks live out there uh, on the edges and the fringes of Judea. Like, what good could come from that place? See, there's this final wrinkle in the story. This passage ends with a fulfillment of a prophecy of Jesus being called a Nazarene. And there's a problem with that. If you were to do a, uh, if you have a Bible software to search on your phone, like, where's the, uh, the, this prophecy fulfilled of Jesus being called a Nazarene? You did a word search in the Old Testament. You wouldn't find uh, an actual prophecy where Jesus is being prophesied as a Nazarene. So we got a problem here, right? There is no Old Testament prophecy that specifically says that the Messiah will be called a, a Nazarene as in from the town of Nazareth. So what's going on here? Here's a couple of options for us, and I believe that they really do show, again, the beauty of the gospel on display, and it shows that Matthew was way more of a Bible nerd than you or I. 
Because this, I think, is him doing a little bit of wordplay study here and showing that Jesus is being really called a Nazarene. First is the option. In, 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 in Greek and in Hebrew, there's an Isaiah uh, reference with a word that sounded like Nazarene. And it was a word called Nestor. And I know I don't normally do, talk about Greek and Hebrew, but I think this is really important here. Okay, So just follow along my little uh, Bible nerd rabbit hole here for a second. Okay, So Nestor means branch or sprout. And Matthew's point could be that Jesus was sprouting up from an obscure village in Galilee much like all the prophecies in the book of Isaiah, calling Jesus the, the branch or the, the root of Jesse. He's springing up from this random, seemingly random place. Jesus was the branch predicted by the prophets. And the name of the town he grew up in happens to sound like the prophet's word for branch. But there's a second option as well. The people of Nazareth were despised, okay? I don't know where you grew up, but there were certain sections of, of where I grew up out in Sampson County that if people came from a certain spot, I mean, it, it, it was bad, but people kind of despised those people. They're like, man, those people are dirty. Those people are backwards. Those people don't know what they're talking about, or they're kind of this or they're that. If you were from Nazareth here, you were despised to a certain degree. See, even in John 1, 46, uh, Nathaniel asked, can anything could come out of Nazareth? Where Philip is going to see, come and see Jesus, the good thing coming out of Nazareth. The point being that Jesus here identifies with the lowest of the low. If you feel despised, if you feel like you're at the bottom of the social class, Jesus wants to show that he identifies with you. He loves you. He is for you. And he wants to identify with you even in the place that he comes from. Either way, though, whether we think it's branch or despised, I think this shows that Jesus was going to be the promised one who provided salvation, which sounds pretty grand, but he wasn't going to accomplish this by touting his power or demanding privilege like Herod. Jesus was going to come with the exact opposite ethos. Even though he had all the power in the universe, he would identify with those who were despised and rejected. So here, here are how we are to move and to respond to a passage like this on this Christmas Eve. First, I think we take the lesson from Joseph. We, in as much as we can, humbly obey the word of God as it comes to us through his word. We really do believe that the Bible is God's word to us. So as Joseph received the word from the angel and obeyed it, our job is to obey the word of the Lord as it comes to us through this book. This is why we get our noses in this book as often as we can and we obey what we have read from God. It's not just enough to get your eyes in here. You've got to get your heart in here. You've got to apply this to your own self and allow it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to change you moment by moment, day by day. Also, too, we find encouragement through this passage. We find assurance in God's protection amidst life's trials. Maybe you do need encouragement this morning, that you can find assurance in God's protection as you walk through life's many trials. That God really can be trusted. And, and, and it's not this protection that God provides. It's not that you're going to have protection from all disappointment. Jesus certainly didn't. His parents didn't. You don't, you're not going to have protection from all threats of danger. Jesus didn't. Certainly not from hard things. But we can have assurance that we can have a life that it will not be lived in vain. We will be 
protected from spiritual danger because God loves us and protects us. And most importantly, we get protection from death itself because Jesus has come, lived the life that we, des- uh, uh, we, we, we should have lived, died the death that we deserve for sin, and resurrected so that we could have the promise of resurrection life ourselves. And then lastly, this passage shows us that God can be trusted because of his commitment to see the salvation accomplished through Jesus. Not through the threat of death, sorrow, lowly status could stand in the way of Jesus showing that his kingdom would be like no other. And we would have a seat at the table no matter what our circumstances are. I pray this Christmas we really really would trust the salvation that Jesus has to offer to protect us through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Let me pray that he would. Jesus, um, I pray that this morning, uh, this Christmas Eve, God, that we would set our affections again on you. We would remember, Jesus, that you have um, met us in the places of our deepest need. Um, You have shown your grace and your mercy to us uh, through your own life and the story that your life tells us that um, you were a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, that you are our great high priest who knows in every way uh, the ways in which we would be tempted because you were tempted in those ways as well. And Jesus, I pray that we would um, remember this morning as our great high priest, you stand forever, always advocating for us before the Father so that we can experience the, 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 the newness of, of life in you, Jesus, that we can have uh, the promise of the gospel ever before us because of what you've done. And Jesus, I pray that this Christmas uh, we would remember um, you really are uh, our greatest present. You really are our greatest joy. And I pray that we would lean into that this morning and, and every day after. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.